goes to. The Oscar goes to. And the Oscar goes to. And the Oscar goes to. And the Oscar goes to. Slumdog Millionaire. An American in Paris. Platoon. Birdman. Curious of fire. Driving Miss Daisy. Forrest Gump. From here to eternity. The year is 1991. After spending the better part of the century as the second most powerful nation on Earth, the Soviet Union dissolves into 14 smaller new nations. Most headlines agree that beloved children's author Dr. Seuss has died at the age of 87, except Fox News, which argues that Seuss was cancelled by the radical left. Grunge music explodes onto the scene with albums from Nirvana, Pearl Jam, and Soundgarden, but it's Brian Adams' Everything I Do, I Do It For You that is the biggest hit of the year. Just like last week's 2009 redo, the Pittsburgh Penguins win the Stanley Cup, while Michael Jordan wins the first of his NBA championships with the Chicago Bulls. The Gulf War begins and ends while Jeffrey Dahmer is finally captured after his decade-long string of murders, marking the first but not last reference to cannibalistic murderers in this week's podcast. The most popular baby names are Michael, Christopher, Ashley, and Jessica, while the bowl haircut makes a completely unnecessary trendy comeback. The world lost singing icon Freddie Mercury, but not before Bohemian Rhapsody returns to its number one billboard spot for the first time since 1975. And for the first time ever, you can read all about this news and so much more on the brand new invention called the World Wide Web. To top it all off, some statues were handed out at the 64th Annual Academy Awards, and that is where our story goes to next. Welcome to Reelin' in the Years, the film podcast that aims to dust off the gems and kick out the trash to find the snubs and flubs of Oscar night's past. My name is Matt, I'll be your podcast host. Let's hit that rewind button all the way back to 1991 and start the show. Hello and welcome to 1991. It was a crazy year full of many important events in history, politics, pop culture, many of which would change the world as we know it, and it is through this lens that many of us watched the 64th Academy Awards, hosted on March 30th, 1992. Here at Reelin' in the Years, we aim to take a critical look at Oscar's past to reconsider those choices and maybe, just maybe, give out awards that are a little bit more fitting in retrospect. But before we jump into 91, let's uh, fast forward uh, about 18 years here to our previous episode in 2009. To recap last week's episode for all those who might have missed it, 2009, honestly... Uh, not to, to knock it too much, it was one of the weaker Oscar years in history, but it still had its fair share of contenders. In the original ceremony, we saw Best Picture and Best Director go to Catherine Bigelow's The Hurt Locker, marking the first time a female director had won the Oscar or a female-directed uh, film had won Best Picture. So pretty historic night. Uh, while Bigelow kept her Best Director award in our redo, The Hurt Locker does not keep the crown. Instead, we sent that off uh, to the timely George Clooney dramedy, Up in the Air, directed by Jason Reitman. Uh, Jeff Bridges, Monique, and Christopher Waltz all kept uh, their acting awards for Crazy Heart, Precious, and Inglorious Bastards, respectively. But time has not been so kind to poor Sandra Bullock for her turn in The Blind Side. And listen, I know we all love Sandy. She is America's sweetheart. And she will have her time in this podcast in another year. But for now, uh, we are going to be switching that award and give Best Actress to Carrie Mulligan 
in an education. So that pretty much wraps up last week. Like I said, uh, one of the weaker years. Uh, and in all honesty, I thought that we would kind of have two weak years back to back with 1991. Was I wrong? Well, let's find out by checking out Oscar Knight itself. Live from Los Angeles, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences presents Oscar, the 64th Annual Academy Awards. Brought to you by Redline. The most unforgettable women in the world wear Revlon. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. I had to keep that Revlon ad in. Uh, if there is any spokesperson from Revlon listening, listen, I feel that I am owed uh, some long overdue ad revenue. Okay, so uh, uh, we'll be in touch on that. Uh, but, but for Oscar night itself, listen, like I said in the opening, Michael Jordan had begun the first of his three peats. And in a weird way, the Academy were finishing up one of their own. Producer Gilbert Cates uh, was rehired for the third straight year as producer. He would go on to run the night a total of 14 times in total, including the many of the best-received ceremonies in recent histories, and did so with his longtime running mate, Billy Crystal, who was also making his third straight appearance as Oscar host himself. Now, if you're worried about a little bit of crystal fatigue, right, maybe the ceremony was turning a little bit boring, well, think again. With almost 45 million households turning in, which was a 5% rise from the year before, the 64th Academy Awards were a critical and commercial hit, earning universal praise from almost all publications. In fact, many called for Billy Crystal to return to host next year, with some even going as far to say that the job should just be his for as long as he wanted. But while he didn't return the next year, Crystal is the name that we will be hearing many times in future episodes. Speaking of Billy, he really wanted to make a splash to start the show, and actually planned on bungee jumping out of the rafters to the stage below. Now, as you might kind of guess, health and safety had a little bit of a worry about this, fearing a potential accident, which admittedly, you know, watching uh, watching Billy Crystal uh, crash onto the Oscar stage probably would have put a damper on the rest of the ceremony, so the stunt was understandably cancelled. Fortunately, it was replaced with one of the most iconic moments in Oscar host history. And now, your host for the 64th Academy Awards presentation, Mr. Billy Crystal. having some of the Academy over for dinner. Care to join me? Yes, anytime. Anytime. <laughs> Good evening. I look like the goalie from the SAG hockey team. Yes, Billy Crystal coming out in a full-on Hannibal Lecter straight jacket and uh, mask look was an iconic entrance uh, and one of the most famous from recent Oscar history and maybe proved that Crystal was a little bit psychic. We're going to come back to that in a little bit. The ceremony overall was a big hit. It would go on to win three primetime Emmys, pretty much erasing the stink that had haunted the Academy Awards ever since Rob Lowe and Snow White performed their infamous 11-minute opening duet uh, that would go down as one of not just the worst moments in Oscar history, but in live television history, period. Four years uh, later, that was pretty much all gone. Thanks to the combo of Cates and Crystal, they basically gave us the modern ceremony that we are still familiar with today. But of course, we aren't here to talk about the ceremony. We're here to talk about the awards that were handed out. So on that note, let's get to the nominees and ask ourselves, snub or flub? 
Welcome to Snub or Flub, where we introduce the major players on Oscar night and ask ourselves if they belong or not. Now, usually we save the winner to last, but this year we should just talk about it right away because this 64th Academy Awards was dominated by this one film, and it was the film that Crystal paid homage to at the very start of the ceremony and one that would not leave people's lips for the rest of the night. Well, perhaps you'd care to... Lend us your view on this questionnaire, sir. Oh, no, 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 no. You were doing fine. You had been courteous and receptive to courtesy. You had established trust with the embarrassing truth about Migs. And now this ham-handed segue into your questionnaire. It won't do. For the first time in this podcast, we have a clear-cut classic as an Oscar winner. And no offense to The Hurt Locker or American Beauty, but The Silence of the Lambs is one of the all-time uh, most critically respected, commercially respected Oscar winners of all time. Directed by Jonathan Demme and starring Anthony Hopkins and Jodie Foster, The Silence of the Lambs is one of the greatest horror thrillers ever made. For an underappreciated genre that is often uh, having a rough time on Oscar night, in fact horror films have only been nominated six times, and uh, Silence is the only film that's uh, ever won, Silence of the Lambs cleaned up in the 64th Academy Awards, just like Hannibal Lecter cleaned up that plate of liver and fava beans while washing it down with a nice Chianti. It is just the third film to complete the prestigious Oscar 5 sweep, winning Best Screenplay, Actor, Actress, Director, and Picture, joining 1934's It Happened One Night and 1975's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest as the only other films to accomplish this feat. Lecter is often ranked as one of the greatest film characters of all time, with AFI, American Film Institute, giving him the number one spot on their list of movie villains, with Clarice Starling, their sixth spot, for heroes, and it's quite often finds itself on both critics and fans lists alike of the greatest movies and movie characters of all time. A box office sensation that would spawn many, unfortunately, lesser sequels, The Silence of the Lambs will live on for years in our popular consciousness. Now, usually this movie is met with nothing but praise, and understandably so, so I think it's important to maybe point out some of the flaws that maybe we have brushed under the rug for the last 30 years. Most notably, it has been very intriguing that the silence of the Lamb's most vocal critics have come from the feminist and the LGBTQ critic community. Now, this is not a recent development, so I'm not, I'm not bringing in modern day uh, arguments here. In fact, on Oscar night itself, there was a huge protest that almost forced the red carpet to be moved when protest group Queer Nation formed a sit-in near the th awards theater. Through the late 80s and 90s, more and more violent, psychopathic villains had been portrayed either as part of the LGBTQ community or coded to do so. This includes Basic Instinct, JFK, and later The Crying Game, and even in, you know, popcorn blockbuster comedies like Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, uh, many of the villains fit into this category. While Silence may star the feminist icon Jodie Foster as Cleary Starling and clearly shows the discrimination she faces in a male-dominated field, Silence of the Lambs definitely falls into the trap of using female brutality as a plot device and is just straight-up transphobic. Many movies besides Silence of the Lambs are guilty of this, and most are nowhere near its skill level, but this is a criticism that just can't be ignored. Still, 
Despite some of its flaws, there may be no more important and impactful best picture winner in recent history, as Silence basically revamped the criminal investigation murder mystery thriller for a new generation. David Fincher, just four years away from his neo-noir masterpiece of Seven, owes a lot to Silence of the Lambs, and the rise of streaming giants like Netflix earn a huge portion of their revenue and viewership from the true crime genre that is heavily indebted to the style and content that Silence of the Lambs really revolutionized. If you are a fan of the true crime, glass of wine, bed by nine crowd, well, pour out a little bit of your Chianti next time you turn on Forensic Files or a Law & Order rerun because all roads lead back to Hannibal Lecter and the Silence of the Lambs. So congratulations to one of the best picture winners in recent history. Silence of the Lambs easily keeps its spot as nominee, but will it keep its crown? Let's find out by checking the others. No kidding. Yep. I'll be a son of a bitch. Mind my asking how you managed to get him to go along? Well, we reached an accommodation. He brought me the money, I gave him a job. What job? Running the day-to-day -day mechanics of my operation. That's my job. No, no, that was your job. You're working for him now. I think I'm missing something. <laughs> you certainly are. About $14,000 and change. That's the $14,000 that you stole from us after the forty-two that Mickey took. Up next, we have the crime drama biopic Bugsy, starring Warren Beatty, Annette Bening, Harvey Keitel, and Ben Kingsley. Now, Warren Beatty is one of the most important and interesting Hollywood stars in recent history. He kind of helped to usher in the new Hollywood feel and is one of the first uh, kind of like leading men to really get involved in production and directing. Uh, Beatty kind of has the good looks and the charm of a George Clooney, but I always found it weird that he kind of plays his characters uh, who are unpredictable and off-putting, kind of like Jack Nicholson would. This kind of makes him a very interesting lead, and uh, Beatty combines these characteristics characteristics to play one of the most infamous mobsters of all time and the brains behind the Las Vegas Strip itself, Ben, don't call me Bugsy, Bugsy Siegel. Directed by Barry Levinson, who won Best Director three years back with Rain Man, Bugsy is an ode to the 1930s and 1940s Hollywood, and thanks to incredible set design and a great, great score from the master Ennio Marconi himself, aesthetically it works very well. Throw in Annette Bening as Bugsy's hot-headed mistress turned wife, a movie casting choice that would actually repeat itself in real life as Beatty and Bening uh, would soon marry, along with Harvey Keitel, Ben Kingsley, and Joe Montagna, who is Fat Tony in The Simpsons. You seem to have a hit on your hands, and it is nominated for 10 awards this night, logging away with two. But looking back on it now 30 years later, it is honestly hard to find the initial appeal. Honestly, there were better, more engaging tales from a similar era uh, that would come later that kind of push Bugsy back to an afterthought. Movies like L.A. Confidential, The Aviator, and Casino um, really make Bugsy look too bloated and overstuffed. I can't believe I just said Bugsy was too bloated and overstuffed and compared it to Casino. Okay, sorry about that. Uh, maybe they're both guilty of that. But Bugsy is really uh, too much in one film to really work. Whether you're a fan of the content, the genre, or the actors, I couldn't help but think while I watched it that I've seen all these ideas done before and done better in other films. Perhaps it's a victim of its age and time, but Bugsy, much like its real-life focus, won't make it out of this episode alive. But someday, somewhere... Someone may find out the damn truth. We better. We better or we might just as well build ourselves another government. 
like the Declaration of Independence says, to when the old one ain't working, just, just a little farther out west. An American naturalist wrote, a patriot must always be ready to defend his country against its government. So as we say goodbye to Bugsy, we turn now to another film set in the past, and we turn to the very controversial JFK. There are few directors more controversial than Oliver Stone, and JFK is undoubtedly his crap-disturbing masterpiece. A direct challenge to the Warren Commission that investigated and ruled on the Kennedy assassination, JFK dives deep into conspiracies and espionage, calling out not just the quote-unquote myth of the Kennedy assassination, but basically the idea of America involved in the Cold War. I really admire Stone's, well, you know, Stone's on this one. Uh, basically taking on the whole idea of America over the last 50 years. And it's a walking lawsuit, and somehow JFK evaded multiple attempts to stop its production and endured one of the most fascinating critical divides in movie history. For example, Roger Ebert gave it four stars, named it Movie of 1991, and deemed it worthy of his top 10 movies of the decade uh, later on in 1999. His review partner, Roper, however, called it journalistically bankrupt nonsense and basically called for it to not be seen. So while Stone may be wrong in his conspiracy theories, there is no doubt that JFK is intoxicating in its level of detail and paranoid feel. Now, had the Academy allowed for 10 nominees for Best Picture in 1991, JFK would have easily made the list, probably in about the 6th or 7th position, but unfortunately we will have to leave JFK behind in our re-rankings this week. Now, is that because there are simply better movies from this year? Or is it because there was just recently a knock at my door after I started recording from two suited gentlemen saying they were from the Bureau? Who knows? I don't know. It's my word against yours. Let's move on to some other nominees. These words come to me in a whisper. I say them as prayer, as regret, as praise. I say, no one's dead. That sweet molasses southern charm that you hear right there is none other than next year's winner of Sexiest Man Alive, Nick Nolte, in the Barbara Streisand starring and directing role of The Prince of Tides. This slow-burning drama about trauma and repressed memory in the South is Streisand's directorial debut, and it actually caused a little bit of a mini-controversy, as critics everywhere praised her excellent work in her first-ever movie, yet Streisand received no Best Director nomination. Streisand plays all the right notes here, especially in a very moving therapy, um, a group of therapy scenes where Nolte gives an incredible uh, performance of a man pushing down and repressing his own past. However, the problem with this film is its melodrama feel. It reminds me of many overwrought melodramatic southern tales about estranged and broken families that are usually based on books, and this is not a knock against the film. It is just for some reason these films are usually seen as the high watermark of cinema each year, usually getting racks of nominations. You think of things like Fried Green Tomatoes, you can think of things like Driving Miss Daisy, uh, maybe Steel Magnolias, uh, The Help uh, Blindside, uh, movies kind of along this ilk, usually very popular at their time and then almost immediately dropped. 
Uh, in fact, and again, nothing against the Prince of Tides, but I doubt that few people could recall it today or maybe have even seen it. And honestly, the biggest reference I think I can think about it is uh, it is referenced once in The Simpsons. Uh, it's the episode where Marge visits a therapist to get over her fear of flying, and that is kind of a spoof on the Prince of Tides. Also, and I, you know, getting a little bit uncomfortable here, one of the tropes that really bothers me the most, especially when we're talking about things like therapy, is I don't know what it is, uh, but in all these dramas, it seems like the screenwriters just can't help but write uh, that the um, that the therapist uh, kind of falls head over heels for their damaged patient, uh, and they usually start an affair, which is what happens in this movie as well. Um, listen, it's a gross cliche that really shouldn't keep popping up, yet it does. Listen, Streisand's great in it, so's Nick Nolte. We're going to keep him as a uh, Best Actor nominee, but the Prince of Tides will be washed out to sea in our re-rankings. Just a little change Small to say the least Both a little scared Neither one prepared Beauty and if you thought it was tragic that only six horror films have ever been nominated for Best Picture, well wait until you hear that only three animated films have accomplished that feat. 1991 saw the first of the bunch with a remarkable Disney film Beauty and the Beast nabbing one of the five nomination slots. A tale as old as time, Beauty and the Beast has been adapted many times throughout film history, but none have reached the level of critical and commercial success like the Disney adaptation. In fact, the Golden Globes made the stunning choice uh, to give Beauty and the Beast the Best Picture for Musical and Comedy Award that year, marking the only time an animated feature has ever accomplished this feat. Buoyed by some of the greatest musical numbers in Disney history, some exceptional voice acting, and one of the best early uses of CGI with the remarkable ballroom dance scene, Beauty and the Beast marked the true resurgence of Disney after a previous two decades of middling reviews and box office bombs. It may seem trite to think about it now, but the 70s and 80s looked very bleak for Disney, and it wasn't until The Little Mermaid two years earlier uh, that it really started to get back on track, but Beauty and the Beast truly marked its comeback. Disney was back, and it is never, ever, 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 ever going away, and that is in large part due to the incredible success of this film. A shocking nomination at its time, Beauty and the Beast was a forward-thinking move by the Academy and easily keeps its spot in our top five films of the year. And that brings us to the end of the best picture list from 1991. So let's survey the field and see those damages. We say sayonara to the Prince of Tides, Bugsy, and JFK, but we keep Beauty and the Beast and the eventual night's winner, The Silence of the Lambs. That opens up three spots on our list, so why don't we take a trip in our cinematic time machine and look at some of the biggest movies of 1991 that might not get some Oscar love today, but you know what? We love them anyway. In a little section called... I could have been a contender. You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Say what you want, folks, but my Brando just gets better and better each week. All right, everyone, I hope that you enjoyed your trip on that cinematic time machine. We have arrived at our 1991 movie lobby. Take a deep breath in. 
You can basically smell the MSG on the popcorn. That's right. Let's take a look around. What do we see? What type of posters are we seeing up on the walls? Well, if you look to your left, look to your right, you're probably going to see some of the following. You're probably going to see the second biggest grossing movie of the year. Which one's number one, you might ask? Well, that is a secret for later in the podcast. You are going to see the second highest grossing film, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, starring none other than Kevin Costner. Um, maybe not the best Robin Hood adaptation ever made. Uh, I know lots of people will have uh, hot takes on Kevin Costner's accent in this. Uh, but you know what? A good action movie here. Got a lot of people in the seats. Uh, we also have City Slickers starring our Oscar host tonight, Billy Crystal. And uh, of course, Marv from Home Alone, Daniel Stern, and eventual Best Supporting Actor, Jack Palance. We also have the Steven Spielberg film Hook, all about Peter Pan, that asks the question, what if the boy who never grew up actually grew up? And leads us to our first handout of the very special uh, award here for the best random, not an Oscar, but probably should be moment of the year, where we take a look back at some of the finest or most memorable scenes that we can't really give an award to, but you know what? We probably should. So the first one that we've got going on right here is the insult dinner scene from Hook. Eat your heart out, you prinkled, wrinkled, fat You're a very ill-mannered young man. You're do you know a that? slug and you worm. Come on, you can do better than that. I can't believe you're encouraging me. Yeah, 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 show me your fastball dust brain, you paunchy sag bottom cute pot. You are a very poor role model for these kids. Do you know that? <laughs> I bet you don't even have a fourth grade reading level. Immortal suck navel. Well, maybe a fifth grade reading level. So there we have it, the dinner insult scene from Hook, our first best random non-Oscar, but probably should be moment of the year. Special shout out to Luke B for this suggestion, uh, saying that this scene brings back wonderful childhood memories, reminding us all that growing older doesn't necessarily mean you have to grow up, and that sometimes all you need is a little imagination. Now, I really, really like this idea right here because what it reminds me of, and again, Hook is not going to receive a lot of love in this recap here, uh, but it does remind me of all those movies that you used to watch as a kid, and it just brings back such a level of nostalgia, such a, a level of memory there, uh, and that's really what movies are all about. So sometimes we can get a little bit too caught up in the uh, in the critiques and maybe where it ranks on um, you know somebody's, uh, somebody's list of the films that they've done, uh, but sometimes we forget to just kind of stop and enjoy the moments right there so uh, maybe there were some other scenes from this year that brings back some happy childhood memories uh, if there is uh, feel free to share those with me on mmmovies.ca and you can always make suggestions uh, for future best random not an oscar but probably should be moments of the year so thanks again for that luke and uh, hope to hear from more people soon if we keep scanning our 1991 movie lobby, we might see a poster for the very gothic The Addams Family, where we have Angelica Houston, who was actually a near miss for a Best Actress nomination today, uh, and uh, is again one of those uh, that movies that if you are a particular uh, if you are of a particular age, uh, probably this brings back a lot of memories as well. Uh, we also have the Julia Roberts movie, Sleeping with the Enemy. Uh, we have one of River Phoenix's last films, My Own Private Idaho. Uh, we have the, uh, the biopic of The Doors, starring Val Kilmer as Jim Morrison. Uh, we have Fried Green Tomatoes. We have What About Bob, and I want to give a special shout out to the uh, listener who didn't share their name but wanted What About Bob to be given a little bit more Oscar love. While I can't promise it in this episode, 
hey, anything from Bill Murray gets a thumbs up from me. Switching gears, after we just talked about Hook, how it has so many happy memories for many of us, uh, how about a movie uh, that might have ruined our childhood and uh, made us permanently afraid of bees? Uh, we have uh, My Girl, which came out this year. That funeral scene, just too much. Uh, going from a funeral to a wedding, we have the first Steve Martin, uh, Father of the Bride film, a remake from a Spencer Tracy movie uh, years and years back. We also got a special shout out to show some Oscar love to uh, everybody's favorite uh, 90s uh, firefighter film, Backdraft. Uh, of course, we have the uh, beloved uh, sequel to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, The Secret of the Ooze. You've got Hot Shots, and in that same vein, you have Naked Gun 2.5, a, a great sequel to a, <laughs> just uh, one of the sillier uh, comedy franchises out there. Uh, we've got another listener who wanted to point out just how great of a sequel uh, this is, and uh, remind us all that it is really hard. If the first movie is funny, it's really hard to capture that magic again for a sequel. I would very happily uh, even call Naked Gun 2.5 the sequel of the year. But again, a little bit more foreshadowing. We will get to that one a little bit later on in this podcast. We've got the great Martin Scorsese remaking uh, one of the classic thrillers uh, from the 50s with Cape Fear. Again, starring our friend Nick Nolte. Uh, he really had a, a big year this year. We also have The Fisher King, which i got to give a quick shout out to here. Uh, such a beautiful, beautiful movie. It is one of the very few, uh, it's actually the only Terry Gilliam movie where he directed it but didn't write it. Terry Gilliam, of course, uh, from the Monty Python troupe, uh, probably best remembered for movies like Brazil. And um, I'm trying to think of something more recent, maybe The Brothers Grimm uh, he did a, a couple years ago. Uh, it was the only movie that he directed that he didn't write. And honestly, I wish it was more because I can't picture anybody else doing that movie. Robin Williams is incredible in it. Uh, Jeff Bridges is great as well. And uh, Mercedes Rule would eventually win Best Supporting Actress uh, for her role in this film as well. Um, there is, I, I think The Fisher King has become only more and more important over the years, not just with the, uh, the passing of uh, the great Robin Williams, but also reminding us that words are important and the messages that we send out there and the messages that we send out uh, to people listening are uh, important. So it's important to choose our words and take um, ownership over those a little bit more carefully. I really think that the Fisher King does a great job of bringing this up, uh, and I wish that I could give it a little bit more love today, uh, but just a quick little shout out here. And we will end our recap of our cinematic time machine here with one of the most underrated Coen Brothers films, and one of their best as well, Barton Fink. Uh, really, it's there. What I like about this movie is the Coen brothers basically explaining what writer's hell is like, being stuck and not being able to write anything. Uh, but they also make, you know, the writer actually be literally and figuratively in hell uh, as well, stuck in his motel room. So uh, a movie that I find just gets better and better each time that you watch it. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have too much room for it here today, uh, but a quick special shout out uh, to finish off this round. That's as far as you go, Drummond. Any final requests, Lieutenant? Yes. Can I have the gun? Oh, no. And that is the end of the Could Have Been a Contender round. I hope that you enjoyed that trip in our cinematic time machine. And welcome back to the 21st century and uh, 2021. A big thank you to all the people who responded with their favorite movies, their show me some Oscar love takes, and their favorite movie moments of the year. Remember, you can get your opinion heard by emailing me at mmmovies30 uh, at gmail.com, or you can message me on the website mmmovies.ca, or you can shoot me a message over Twitter, uh, where you can follow me at mmmovies3. So, 
with that plug, that shameless plug out of the way, uh, we have a couple questions left to fill. Who's going to fill those three best picture spots? What about the acting awards? And also, like, what was Meryl Streep doing? I have gone now almost 30 minutes without mentioning Meryl Streep. What is going on? All these questions and more will be answered in just a few moments. But first, a quick look at how we're going to be doing our re-rankings. Alright everybody, so for our new listeners, first off, welcome. Thank you for not turning this off already. And if you just woke up, you missed, uh, well honestly... You didn't miss too much. Fans of Reelin' in the Year will know this criteria already, but just in case you missed uh, our first Reelin' in the Year's episodes a few weeks back, here is how we judge who makes it and who doesn't in these re-rankings. I'm going to shorten it up here, but we basically use five basic criteria, and here they are. Number one, we have pop consciousness. Some movies are remembered long after they're released. Uh, while others kind of drift away in our memories. The longer it stays in our popular consciousness, the more that we talk about it, the better it will do in these re-rankings. Number two, we have subject matter. Movies are always used as a benchmarking culture, and as German director Wim Wenders famously said, every movie is political, most political of all are those that pretend not to be. If it seems like a movie isn't saying anything to you, then you might not be looking hard enough. Movies that have created conversations, been impactful in its representation, or maybe even changed the way we think about an issue, will get a boost from this criteria. Number three, we have star power. Straight up, the Oscars are the most famous employee of the year awards, enough said. If someone has put in the work, you know, grinded their way through to build a strong career and help the film industry, then you know what? They deserve a little bit of extra love uh, and maybe a little extra nudge for their contributions. Number four, we have critical popularity. You know, enough with the movies that critics love but audiences hate. No one saw the reader, let's be real. So let's stop dismissing popular movies as if they don't have cinematic merit as well. If both audiences and critics enjoyed it and it did well at the box office, then it shouldn't be dinged, right? So that shouldn't be held against it. So we are going to reward them here. And lastly, we have legacy. Some movies just change the way that we think about a subject, a person, or a genre. It may take years for this movie to resurface or be fully appreciated, but when it does, it deserves to be recognized. So those criteria again are pop consciousness, subject matter, star power, critical popularity, and legacy. So those are the criteria that we are going to be using to re-rank our movies and our awards. So let's get into it. It's time to hand out some hardware. First up, we have Best Picture nominees. Now, we're going to name the new nominees that we have right here, but we are going to hold off, uh, much like the Oscars does, uh, to announce the winner at the end of the show. If you remember, just a little while back, we have three vacant spots to fill, and they're going to be filled by the following movies. Let's take a look at that sign up there. See what it says? Cash for your home. You know what that is? Bill Boy. What are y'all, Amos and Andy? Are you stepping and he's fetching? I'm talking about the message, what it stands for. It's called gentrification. It's what happens when the property value of a certain area is brought down. Huh? You listening? Yeah. They bring the property value down. They can buy the land at a lower price. Then they move all the people out, raise the property value, and sell it at a profit. Now, what we need to do is we need to keep everything in our neighborhood, everything black. Black owned with black money. 
Our first new nominee has to go to Boys in the Hood, uh, directed by debut filmmaker John Singleton, who became the youngest nominee at the age of 24 and also the first black man to be nominated for this award. Uh, starring newcomers Cuba Gooding Jr., Angela Bassett, Nia Long, Morris Chestnut, Regina King, and Ice Cube. And of course, the voice that you just heard over the uh, the clip, veteran actor Lawrence Fishburne. Boys in the Hood is a coming-of-age story based in south-central L.A. I was absolutely blown away by this movie. Listen, I didn't really know what to expect, uh, and I expected maybe the 30 years of a distance between uh, watching it and having come out that it might be slightly dated, but I was very, very impressed. Uh, since the Oscars usually notice and fall for the racial reconciliation pictures, these are terms that are used a lot uh, to describe movies like Driving Miss Daisy or Green Book, uh, where people talk about racial divides and uh, kind of like uh, tensions between uh, groups as something that is a personal issue that can be overcome. Now, this is going to be a very recurring segment on this uh, podcast where we talk about how these films are really, you know, they're, they're quite reductive uh, and they're not really helpful for explaining what's really going on. So uh, this was kind of the vein of the picture that I was thinking of. I was expecting something that was a, you know, a weak assimilationist style film, uh, but instead I received like an absolute knockout. Uh, parts of the film are admittedly raw, right? Remember Singleton was a first time director uh, and there's an interesting clip of him explaining that he, uh, because they shot the film in order, he was like, oh man, the end of the film, I'm such a better director than at the beginning because I literally had no idea what I was doing. Uh, and some parts are maybe a little bit too on the nose. Uh, and I'll be doing a longer review uh, for this in uh, mmmovies.ca uh, where we're going to be recapping all the Oscar nominees as we go. Uh, but simply put, this is a story about the struggles of black Americans told by black people and understands the immense systemic roadblocks that keeps their communities down. Um, over the years, Boys in the Hood has become a staple of black cinema. And honestly, beyond the contributions of Spike Lee, um, it is inarguably one of the most important black films ever made. So do yourself a favor if you haven't checked it out already and check it out soon. Uh, in Canada, it's available on Netflix. In our re-rankings, Boys in the Hood becomes the first predominantly black cast uh, to gain a Best Picture nomination, and it couldn't have happened for a better film. Boys, I'm getting mad. Okay, but where are we going? Oklahoma City. Jimmy's gonna wire me some money and then we're gonna... Jimmy? We're gonna... You talked to him? Did you tell him? what he say? Is he mad? No, I didn't tell him and that's what we gotta get straight now. Daryl's been calling mad as a horn and making all kinds of noise and... You know, it is not unique that Oscar nights in retrospect look really bad, but what's really kind of funny about this year in 91 is that they were so close to getting it right. Both Singleton from Boys in the Hood and Ridley Scott, who directed the uh, clip that you just heard, Thelma and Louise, they both gained Best Director nominations, but both failed to secure a Best Picture nomination as well. And this is really strange, because they usually go hand in hand. I don't really see the Academy's justification for this, uh, because Thelma and Louise is an absolutely remarkable movie. Uh, it is the story of two girlfriends who have to go on the run after committing a justified murder, uh, leaving their lives behind to basically race for the Mexican border before they're caught. You know, another movie, much like Boys in the Hood, I've heard a lot about. I was wondering, well, maybe it's going to be a little bit dated. Let me tell you, it just gets better and better with age. Um, speaking of legacy, one of our criteria there, there may be no film that has aged better 
on this list after the Me Too movement of the last decade. While many will argue, and it's wrong, by the way, the arguments that you usually hear, uh, that Thelma and Louise isn't a feminist film because the protagonists, you know, make increasingly worse decisions, I think that really misses the point altogether. Thelma and Louise is all about the power and the strength of sisterhood, friendship, and women sticking up for women in a society that is literally stacked against them. Something rings so painfully true when Thelma and Louise's first choice is to flee the scene of a crime, knowing that their justified actions of self-defense probably won't hold up in court. In fact, later in the movie, it's suggested that maybe they know this because they have previous experiences themselves. All the men in their lives are disappointment. They either actively harm them, suppress them, or fail to work with them, and they've been wronged one too many times to forgive again. Susan Sarandon and Gina Davis are honestly one of the best film duos in film history. And really, Scott, you know, for a guy who is probably more famous for epics and sci-fi movies like Blade Runner, Alien, and Gladiator, just does an incredible job telling this story. I was really just surprised by some of the innovative uh, camera work. Uh, it really feels super progressive, like an early 2000s film, um, almost kind of like uh, early Steven Soderbergh. Um, again, was not expecting this at all, and I can't say enough good things about Thelma and Louise. Um, it really scores highly across the criteria board, and easy, easy choice to be another nom in our best picture list. You may remember that we said that we were saving the biggest box office hit for a little bit later. Oh, I didn't forget, because we were saving it for the very last spot in our Reelin' in the Years re-ranking. That's right, James Cameron's incredible sequel, Terminator 2 Judgment Day, takes the last spot here on our Best Picture list. It is arguably the greatest sequel, possibly the best blockbuster, and one of the most groundbreaking uses of special effects in film history. Listen. While Cameron gets more credit for special effects in things like Avatar, T2's use of computer and practical effects is plain goat level, right? The imagery of the shape-shifting T-1000 walking through the prison gates, Arnold one-handing a shotgun on a motorcycle, and that intense, terrifying nuclear blast dream sequence are all things of legend. Of course, none of this works without one of the best blockbuster-level stories penned Ever. And incredibly, through all the special effects, through all the money uh, that was put into this film, it is the connection between Arnie and the young John Connor, and admittedly, maybe one of the weaker parts of the film is the child acting, but it is legitimately moving. The thumbs up scene at the end of the movie is honestly one of the most emotional of the year, and damn it, it was almost enough for me to be brave enough to give Arnold Schwarzenegger an honorary nomination for Best Austrian Machine. The most expensive film ever made for its time, T2 helped to lay the mold for future big-budget movies, which many would try to replicate over the coming decades. Of course, very few were able to do it to the same level, including many of the disappointing Terminator sequels. T2 easily swept the technical Oscars this year, but in our re-ranking, we give it some more prestigious recognition as well, and it earns the final spot in our Best Picture list. We now say hasta la vista to these films for now and move on to our acting awards. Now here are the nominees for the best actress in the supporting role. 
So starting off our hardware handout, okay, we are going to begin with Best Supporting Actress. Uh, first off, we're going to mention some of the original nominees that unfortunately won't survive the cut. Two very talented actresses, Diane Ladd in Rambling Rose and Kate Nelligan in The Prince of Tides, uh, unfortunately will not make our list to start off. Uh, by all accounts of our criteria, these actresses unfortunately don't survive the chop and will instead be replaced by two newcomers who are soon to become household names. Our first new nominee is going to be the great Angela Bassett, making her major film debut as Riva Devereaux, the master's degree-owning divorced mother of Cuba Gooding Jr.'s Trey. Bassett only appears in a few scenes, but that's probably for the best because she ends up stealing them all. A black mother who refuses to be kept in this category and recognizes the barriers all around her, Bassett wants a better life not just for her son, but for herself as well, and she fights uphill to gain further education, a better job, and a more comfortable life. She's as fierce as she is loving, driven as she is selfless, and an obvious star in the making. Our second nominee is going to go a little bit off the board here. We're actually going to go with Christina Ricci as Wednesday Adams in The Adams Family. Few child actors have made a bigger dent in pop culture as Ricci has, uh, and her portrayal as the gothically deadpan Wednesday gave inspiration to kids everywhere who were tired of being too polite, too quiet, and forcefully chipper. Wednesday Adams is an iconic character and will always be tied to Ricci's performance, and for that, she's recognized here. Joining the newcomers Bassett and Ricci are the three original nominees left from this 64th Academy Awards. We have uh, our second young nominee, Juliette Lewis, uh, who was uh, nominated for her work in Cape Fear. Uh, she appears besides heavyweights Robert De Niro, Jessica Lange, and of course Nick Nolte making another appearance in this, uh, in this podcast, uh, and she holds her own. On the opposite side of the age spectrum, we have our fourth nominee, Jessica Tan Tandy in Fried Green Tomatoes. Uh, Tandy plays a somehow older version of Miss Daisy from Driving Miss Daisy. Uh, and even though maybe there's uh, some issues in Fried Green Tomatoes, uh, you know what, we will keep Jessica Tandy on this list uh, to average out the age with the younger talents here. But the winner was on uh, this Oscar night and will be in this re-ranking uh, going to Mercedes Rule uh, for her work in The Fisher King, where she plays the hard-working but supportive girlfriend to Jeff Bridges, who is an out-of-work and depressed former shock jock, uh, pushing him to reconcile with his past and move on with his future. So congratulations again to Mercedes Rule for winning not just the Oscars in 1991, but also our reeling in the years re-ranking for Best Supporting Actress as well. Here are the nominees for actor in a supporting role. Moving on, we go now to Best Supporting Actor. And to start off, we're actually just going to read out the whole list here because we're going to change it up quite a bit. We have Tommy Lee Jones and JFK, Harvey Keitel and Ben Kingsley uh, for their roles in Bugsy. We have Michael Lerner in Barton Fink. And we have the eventual winner of the night, Jack Palance, for his role in City Slickers. Now, this list is going to get messed up quite a bit. While all these nominees are longtime and respected members in Hollywood, and they've both racked up a lot of hardware in other years as well, we have to do some re-ranking. Now, the first one is Michael Lerner in Barton Fink. He is fantastic, but I can't help but thinking that it should probably go to none other than his castmate, John Goodman, playing Charlie Meadows, the seemingly cheerful and kind neighbor to Barton Fink, who has some secrets he is hiding. Listen, I really like Michael Lerner as, uh, as um, Jack Lipnick in this movie, but again, overshone uh, by John Goodman in a supporting role. So we're going to do a little swap right there. 
Harvey Keitel, much like Nick Nolte, had a hell of a 1991, starring as notorious gangster Mickey Cohen in Bugsy, as well as the detective in Thelma and Louise. We're going to keep him for his, uh, for his work here, for the uh, run that he had, but we're going to have to leave behind Ben Kingsley, who is going to be replaced by Ted Levine, who played Buffalo Bill in The Silence of the Lambs. Put the lotion and the nomination in the basket. Jack Palance, a Western film veteran and staple of classic Hollywood, shines in City Slickers as the wisecracking and tough-as-nails rancher Curly Washburn, and would prove that his toughness is not just an act on Oscar night, when uh, after he won, he raced up to the stairs, and mind you, he's like 70 years old, just started to do unannounced one-handed push-ups en route to picking up his statue. While I don't want to rob us of one of the most unexpected and just kind of uh, just kind of fun moments in Oscar history, I have to give the award to the great Lawrence Fishburne for his role as Trey's dad, Furious Styles in Boys in the Hood. Channeling the calm and cool presence that would make him a superstar in as Morpheus in The Matrix, Fishburne exudes intelligence and a presence that is seemingly tranquil, but hides a deep, burning rage. Styles can pinpoint the exact reasons his community is stuck where they are, and his push for progressive policies and black pride ring true today more than ever. A much overdue award for Fishburne, who has been working in Hollywood now for well over four decades. He wins our Reeling in the Years Award for Best Supporting Actor. Here are the nominees for performance by an actress in a leading role. Moving on to the lead actress category, it is time to start off by playing our favorite in-round game, What Was Meryl Streep Doing? In What Was Meryl Streep Doing? We ask a very simple question. On Oscar night, what was the legendary Meryl Streep up to? Well, I am pleased to tell you for the first time in this podcast, Meryl Streep has a much-deserved night off and hopefully got to watch it uh, in the comfort of her sweatpants while watching TV, although I'm sure that she had multiple different Oscar gowns that she could have just paraded herself around in her house. In fact, actually, I kind of hope that she did. Uh, but that doesn't mean her 1991 was eventless. Streep actually starred in Albert Brooks's rom-com Defending Your Life, a actually very well-received and commercially successful comedy fantasy uh, all about love after life. Street plays a recently deceased Julia, who ended up in purgatory with Brooks, even though she seemed to have lived a perfectly happy uh, and seemingly perfect life, while Brooks uh, pretty much made every single mistake that he possibly could have. Many were surprised that this film didn't end up with any Oscar nominations, but perhaps Meryl was happy to just take the night off, because 1991 served up some of the stiffest competition in recent history. We're going to start off by naming off the nominees that came out this year. Uh, first off, we're going to start with the great Laura Dern for her first ever nomination in Rambling Rose. We also have the great Bette Midler in For the Boys. Then we have the tag team duo of Susan Sarandon and Gina Davis in Thelma and Louise. And we also have, of course, the eventual winner, Jodie Foster in The Silence of the Lambs. So... Yeah, probably Meryl Streep is happy that she has the night off here. Dern and Midler, two great performers, are going to get unceremoniously removed from this list to make room for two other names. The first is going to be the great Annette Benning for her work as Virginia Hill in Bugsy. Um, while Bugsy is not the greatest of films, it is at its best when Benning is on screen. 
Babies Bugsy is intoxicated by her presence, frequently sealing his own perilous fate just to appease her. It doesn't work if Benning is not equal parts charming and conniving, and she plays the hot-headed hill very well. Listen, this movie is a lot worse without her in it, so we're going to slot her in to one of the extra Best Actress nomination roles. Our second spot goes to a category that is really, really overlooked, and that is people who are able to command presence in an action film. So who else can it go to than the great Linda Hamilton as Sarah Connor in Terminator 2? After playing more of a damsel in distress role, who in the end kind of saves herself in the original Terminator, Sarah Connor ain't having it in T2. There's no way she's waiting for somebody to save her in this sequel. And after undergoing months worth of grueling workouts and dieting, Hamilton gets absolutely shredded. But it's not just her physical transformation, it's also her character's emotional transformation as well. Uh, she goes from a, again, a damsel in distress to a focused survivalist hero uh, who emerges in the sequel and proves to be equally as helpful at saving the world as the T-800. One of the finest action hero performances ever, Hamilton gives an emotional weight to T2 that helps transcend this film past the simple popcorn flick. And finally, in what might be considered heresy, Jodie Foster is not going to come away with the Best Actress win for her work as the iconic Clarice Starling in The Silence of the Lambs. Listen, I can't say enough good things about Foster's work here, uh, but rest assured, you know, Jodie Foster's already won a Best Actress trophy in 1988 for her work in The Accused, and while almost any other year she would easily walk away with the, uh, with the trophy, we have to go somewhere else tonight. Before we announce our winner, a little bit more of history. In 1968, one of the most contentious Best Actress races in history saw Katherine Hepburn go up against Barbra Streisand, and the winner was actually a tie. There have actually been six ties in Oscar history, and while it's rare, it's not impossible. And you might have noticed that I am just trying to justify the fact that here, at Reelin' in the Years, we are going to give our Best Actress award to Thelma and Louise. You can't split them up, and we're not going to start now. Congratulations to both Susan Sarandon and Gina Davis. Now, you may have gone down together in Thelma and Louise, but guess what? You both ascend the Reelin' in the Years podium together once again. Here are the nominees for performance by an actor in a leading role. Look, folks, you know it, I know it, so let's just cut to the chase. Anthony Hopkins is going to win Best Actor, okay? I know he's only in the movie for like 20 minutes. I know that there's a lot of other great options up uh, for nomination here. But Hannibal Lecter, simply put, is one of the greatest film characters of all time. Hopkins is unreal in this movie. He realized that he found that people who stared were creepy. So he just decided he just wasn't going to blink for the whole movie and just stare into people's souls in every single scene. Even though he is in this film surprisingly very little, there are uh, very few scenes that he's actually in, he dominates the whole film. His aura kind of transcends across the full two hours plus of The Silence of the Lambs, and no one really could match that impact from this year. So congratulations again to Anthony Hopkins for winning the Reelin' in the Years Award for Best Actor. But who else do we have? What were some of the other nominees? We respectfully remove Warren Beatty from this list and replace him instead with Cuba Gooding Jr. in Boys in the Hood, who, while playing uh, teen Trey Styles, uh, is a star in the making, right? This is his breakout role, and Cuba Gooding Jr. is going to be a fixture of films for the next few decades. 
Joining Gooding Jr. is some heavy weights here in the Best Acting category. Uh, we're basically going to stick to what the Oscars decided uh, back in 91. So uh, rounding out this category is going to be the great Robin Williams for his turn in The Fisher King. We also have Nick Nolte. Somehow, again, in this podcast for The Prince of Tides, like we said, an incredible 1991. Uh, and, of course, Robert De Niro for his turn as Max Caddy in Cape Fear. So there you have it. Those are your nominees for Reeling in the Year's Best Actor category. And just like the Oscar night 30 years ago, we are going to award Anthony Hopkins as Best Actor. Sam's not here tonight, but here are the nominees for Achievement in Directing. Our second last category of the night is going to be Best Director. Here is a quick recap of how things shook out in 1991. Jonathan Demme picked up the win for The Science of the Lambs, followed by John Singleton in Boys in the Hood, Barry Levinson in Bugsy, Oliver Stone in JFK, and Ridley Scott in Thelma and Louise. There are two names that we must add to this list. So Levinson is going to get the chop. And regrettably, we're also going to have to say goodbye to Oliver Stone uh, as we need to make room for the then husband and wife pair, James Cameron and Catherine Bigelow. Since we've already discussed Scott and Singleton's skill, we're going to start here with Bigelow, who would eventually win for the Hurt Locker 18 years later, and would also win it in our recap from last week. But it is in 1991 that she made her true masterpiece, the action classic Point Break. While initially deemed to simply be a slightly above average popcorn flick, Point Break has built quite the cult status over the years. The surfing and skydiving scenes are beautifully done and very progressive for its time, but it is the relationship between the characters that I find the most interesting. One of the best examples of early challenges to typical gender roles in masculinity, there are few action films that show two male leads in such an emotional, fragile, and uh, even, dare we say, romantic light. They are both idealists who seem a lot more comfortable in the presence of each other than they do in regular society and around uh, their co-workers, and Point Break is quite possibly the most homoerotic action film not named Top Gun. Point Break does not work without Catherine Bigelow. I often think about what constitutes a best director. Is it the person who made the best movie? Is it the person who got the best performances out of the actors? Or is it the director who really put a spin on it that truly made uh, an average movie that much better? If you subscribe to the later example, then you really need to make room for Catherine Bigelow here because Point Break does not work without her influence. So we are going to recognize her here as nominee number four. The race really comes down, with all respect to Ridley Scott and John Singleton, who are fantastic, the race really comes down to Jonathan Demme versus James Cameron. It is thriller versus blockbuster. It is drama versus explosions. This one is a toss-up. Cameron has a more illustrious career, but has won in the past. He's going to win in 1997 for Titanic. Demi is a well-respected actor's director, but how did he contribute versus the script to having Foster and Hopkins on his side? Was it his choice uh, to have them stand in a particular way? Uh, would it have worked in a different way if the camera was at a slightly different angle? Right? Would another director have made the same choice thanks to the strengths of the actors? These are really, really hard decisions and questions to ask. All five names could have easily won in another year. In fact, 
if we were, uh, you know, put any of these guys in uh, last week's episode, they would have won. Uh, but for changing blockbuster cinema forever and seamlessly integrating computer and practical effects, Reeling in the Years gives best director to future king of the world, James Cameron. So congratulations to the nominees and especially to James Cameron for his much deserved win. Our last award honors that magical realization. Once again, here are the nominees for Best Picture. We are going to wrap up our award ceremony in just a little bit here, but before we do, I just wanted to say that uh, I was really surprised with the quality of the films in 1991. Now, admittedly, there's a lot of famous ones here that maybe I just hadn't gone around to watching yet, uh, but I found myself uh, just really enthralled with a bunch of, um, uh, of films that you know, maybe more famous in their day, uh, but maybe need to come back into the light now uh, a few decades later. So again, this was a much stronger and deeper year than I first originally thought, and I am pleasantly surprised to say that this was actually a very tough decision. A quick reminder of our new finalists. We have The Silence of the Lambs, Boys in the Hood, Beauty and the Beast, Thelma and Louise, and Terminator 2 Judgment Day. We also got to give a special shout out to, uh, again, if we expanded this list, we could easily have made room for Point Break, The Fisher King, Barton Fink, and JFK. There is no right or wrong decision here, but for Best Picture, I wanted to balance the criteria of commercial and critical success, as well as legacy and cultural relevancy. This leads us to award the 1991 edition of Reelin' in the Years Best Picture to The Silence of the Lambs. Just like the 64th Oscar night, Silence of the Lambs is going to be walking out of here with the big award, and while it didn't sweep the awards like it did back at the Oscars, it still takes the top prize amidst some really tough competition. So congratulations again to the Silence of the Lambs for reigning supreme in the Oscar re-rankings, and I do wish that I could chat about this film longer, but you see, I'm having an old friend for dinner. So there you have it folks, 1991 is already three decades ago, yet most of the original choices have remained on the list. So all in all, a pretty good call by the Academy that night, uh, as most of them hold up pretty well years later. Again, I am so pleasantly surprised by the quality of these films and really enjoy diving into my research this week. But like always, chances are that I might have missed your favorite from that year. So. Do you want to make a case for a missing masterpiece? Do you disagree with one of my choices from tonight? Then reach out to me on my website at mmmovies.ca where you can find the latest movie reviews, movies you might have missed, op-eds, and updates. You can also reach me on our email at mmmovies30, that's mmmovies30 at gmail.com. Make sure to also follow me on Twitter at mmmovies3 for all those sweet, sweet updates and occasionally funny but mostly depressing tweets. If you live in the Montreal region, you can find my weekly print column of movies you might have missed in the Vaudreuil Dorian newspaper, your local journal. Find out where you can get your nearest copy, or even how to get your hands on a subscription at yourlocaljournal.ca. Now, do you really want to join the conversation and have your voice heard? Well, if you do, anyone who feels that there is a criminally underrated movie and feels that they need to express themselves more than just a simple uh, email or tweet uh, and would like to make an argument, uh, then please feel free to message me for a future segment of Making the Case, where you can make your case in person for a movie that you feel deserves a bit more love and respect. 
There's nothing left to do now but to spin that wheel and find out what Oscar year we are going to be doing next. All the years from 1990 to 2020 are in play, so long as they haven't been chosen already. And here we go. And the wheel spins around and... Oh, no, no, I know where it's going to land. Oh, boy. <laughs> okay, well, the wheel has a cruel sense of irony here, taking us from one of the earliest to one of the latest years. Uh, you know, uh, I was debating on where, where to cut off the, uh, the Oscar years here because I feel like you need a couple years uh, to really kind of um, figure out what movies were hits and which ones weren't. <laughs> but I can tell you, uh, you didn't need too much time for this year. All right, so the wheel landed on the year of 2018, where the best picture winner was... The Green Book. So, you know, next uh, next episode, it's going to be spicy. Let's just uh, say that. So, you know, uh, some people say that three years isn't long enough to pass judgment. Uh, I wholeheartedly disagree. Uh, so please join us again in two weeks uh, where we break down the 2018 Oscars. And uh, probably, I mean, who knows? We're probably going to hand out a different Best Picture winner. But anyway, here's this week's movie challenge. Number one, here's what you're going to do. You're going to log on to mmmovies.ca this weekend, and you're going to subscribe if you haven't already, and you're going to vote on the poll for which 2018 movie you think deserves consideration for Best Picture. Then what you're going to do is you are going to think back to some of your 2018 faves, and help me by suggesting your favorite Best Random, not an Oscar, but probably should be moment. Remember, it can be serious, it can be silly, it can be random, it's your choice. If you have a good suggestion, I'll give you a shout out in the next episode, like I am right now to Dave F for his choice of best dinner suggestion for Hannibal Lecter's Fava Beans and Chianti, which apparently pairs very nicely with a census taker's liver. And also uh, to Luke B for his uh, best childhood memory moment with the dinner insult scene in Hook. So again, thank you so much to those who uh, to, filled out these surveys last week and got back to me, and I hope to hear more suggestions for you next week and into the future. So there we go, folks. That's 1991 done and dusted. I hope to see you all again in two weeks for some 2018 action, but until then, all the best, and as always, happy streaming.